BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In 1870, the Vatican Council issued the dogmatic words Pastor Eternus, which, among other areas, affirmed papal infallibility. It meant effectively that the Pope could not err in his teachings. It was an assertion with its roots in the early Church, as the Bishop of Rome advanced to being the first among equals and then becoming overall head of the Christian Church in the West, the Vicar of Christ. The idea that the Pope could not err has been a double-edged sword from the Middle Ages, as while it apparently conveyed great power, it also meant that a Pope was constrained by whatever a predecessor had said. If a later Pope was to contradict an earlier Pope, then one of them must be wrong, and how could that be if both were infallible? With me to discuss the rise of the idea of papal infallibility are Tom O'Loughlin, Professor of Historical Theology at the University of Nottingham, Rebecca Rist, Professor in Medieval History at the University of Reading, and Miles Pattenden, Departmental Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Oxford. Tom O'Loughlin, how was the papal infallibility defined in the Vatican Council of 1870? In 1870, the decree saw the Pope as the final judge and he was able to make a definitive statement. So we think of it as a definition, but we we think of definition as a definition you get in a dictionary. What they meant by a definition was that he could give a definitive judgment, and this definitive judgment was guaranteed to him by the promise to Peter that it that it could not be wrong when it dealt with faith and morals and he was deliberately choosing it and he was setting it out to be believed by all the faithful and then just to be doubly sure of that they said and it is irreformable out of its very self ex sese rather than out of the consent of the church and what was he giving this judgment on in theory anything to do with christian religion this particular council the council was giving this power was 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 the pope the council was making a definition that a pope when making a definition was infallible the in 1854 the same pope used his own authority to decree that mary was immaculately conceived in other words that unlike all other human beings she was free of original sin yes that's a hundred four That's before. In 1870, the council decreed that the Pope was himself infallible. And then in 1950, Pius XII declared that Mary was taken body and soul into heaven. What sort of reaction was there to that in 1950? In 1950, there was very little reaction to that because the actual idea behind the definition had been accepted in Catholic and indeed in Orthodox liturgy under another term for at least 1,400 years. And giving it the status of an infallible statement was a little bit like getting a first-class honours in a degree course. It it showed that it it was just adding gilding to the lily. How controversial was the very idea of infallibility to Catholics then? Well, the idea of infallibility, of course, has been controversial since at least the 13th century, it becomes a real problem at the time of the Reformation. And in 1870, there were 
many Catholics who thought that going down the route of trying to define infallibility and actually make it part of Christian faith was just going over the top. Thank you. Rebecca Rist, if we scroll back about 2,000 years and we have, a, about that time, a bishop of Rome, he was simply one of many bishops. How did he become more prominent at the beginning? How did he begin to gain power? Yes, well, we're talking about the development of an idea of papal primacy. So I'd like to emphasize that in the ancient texts and in the early Middle Ages, there is no sense of papal infallibility. As we've already heard, that starts to become a notion from the 13th century onwards. So what we're talking at this very early period is about how the Bishop of Rome came to be first among equals. So that happens um, really throughout um, we have we have different letters of different bishops of Rome throughout the fourth fifth and sixth centuries um, and indeed some earlier going back to the um, to Clement um, of Rome who was a presbyter uh, in one of his letters he wrote to the Church of Corinth and he seems to suggest um, that the Bishop of Rome has some kind of special authority over other Christians now as I say um, Clement of Rome he's Catholics nowadays think of him as as an early pope. He was really a presbyter. Um, presbyter meaning? Presbyter just meaning authoritative priest. Um, but then gradually the bishop becomes more and more important in the early church. Um, and indeed there's no literature to suggest that even bishops can err early on. Um, you don't get the uh, case of an erring bishop until Paul of Samosata um, who is um, accused of heresy at the Council of Antioch in the 3rd century. So up to that time, there hadn't even been a, an idea that a bishop could err, um, let alone any idea of kind of popes and when they err and when they don't. When did the strength then, of the connection with St. Peter come in? St. Yes, Peter being the first pope. And that's Saint, right. St. Peter being the rock on which Christ said he would build his church. So, as I say, in the ancient world, we just have this very important um, patriarchate of Rome, but there are also other very important patriarchs at Antioch, um, for example, or at Alexandria, and from the 4th century onwards from Constantinople. But for a series of reasons, the Bishop of Rome becomes more and more important. Many of these are political reasons. With the fall of the Roman Empire, as it were, the popes, in a sense, can start afresh. Yes, they have to deal with the barbarian invasions, but they're not tied down as they as they are would have been if they'd been in Constantinople, um, because they're not tied to any imperial system anymore. So they're they're freer. And then we also get the problem that Antioch and Alexandria, who have great claims to be um, important patriarchs because of um, ideas of apostolic succession. In the 7th century, they are overrun by Islam. And so for that reason, their power diminishes while that of Rome grows. Peter was the first bishop supposedly there. He died there. And as I say, those popes from the sort of um, late antiquity into the medieval period, I'm talking about Leo the Great and Gregory the Great, they make use of Rome as the old um, empire of the West to build up slowly um, the idea of the Bishop of Rome as being the primate, as being the most important one. How important to this growth was the crowning by the Pope of Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day 800? 
So for the Pope, it was very important because he had this great protector um, among the Franks now. The, Mer the Merovingian line had gone down, the Carolingians had come up. So he saw protection um, against the Lombards being given to him by Charlemagne. But Charlemagne equally, you know, doot days, he was also gaining because he was getting this wonderful sanction um, for his rule. So it was a reciprocal arrangement. And of course, both, in a sense, Pope and Charlemagne are vying to get the most out of it that they can. Um, so by that point, we're now in, um, yes, 800. What support was there in the scripture for this primacy of the Bishop of Rome or the Pope? Um, the most important scriptural passage is Matthew 16, which is all about the powers of binding and loosing that were given to Peter by Jesus. And the church but there's then no mention of the idea of a Pope. That's right. The church then interpreted it as being given not just to Peter and in one sense not just to the early disciples because they also share in the apostolic tradition but to his successors and that's something that the church develops um, over the centuries, that I idea of, of the tradition being handed down not just to Peter but to his successors. Martin, thank you very much. My pattern, how did the primacy of the Pope contribute to the split with the Orthodox Church? And if you could tell people what the Orthodox Church was compared with the Church of Rome. Well, the Orthodox churches are uh, almost by definition the churches that don't accept or didn't accept the primacy of the Pope uh, during the Middle Ages. They were all the, the churches of the eastern half of the Roman Empire um, and uh, outside the Roman Empire in the Middle East. And uh, for most of, or for all of the first millennium, most of those churches did accept uh, the primacy of the Pope in some way, but they interpreted that primacy very differently from the ways uh, in which popes were beginning to interpret it in Rome. So, uh, for instance, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians uh, tended to regard the Pope as first amongst equals rather than as a hierarchical head of the church, um, and they therefore thought that for instance, his jurisdiction over other bishops was very limited, that the Pope couldn't intervene in affairs uh, in dioceses beyond Rome, uh, and also that the Pope could not uh, make theological pronouncements unilaterally, but that any decisions about doctrine uh, needed uh, the convening of a full uh, ecumenical council of the Church. Rebecca mentioned the influence of Islam from the late 7th century onwards. Can you de develop that? I think that, the, as Rebecca said, the fall of the patriarchates of Alexandria and Antioch was very important for this because, uh, in a sense, it left uh, only Rome and Constantinople as the two important centres of Christianity um, that were independent of, of Islamic empires at the end of the first millennium. And um, a series of controversies then erupted between um, the two. Uh, one of the, the first ones uh, occurred during the pontificate of Gregory the Great in the 590s when the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, decided to add the title ecumenical to his other titles uh, which seemed to be um, competing with uh, the Pope as a kind of head for the overall church and uh, Gregory wrote a number of letters complaining to the Byzantine Emperor about that uh, and that was the first in, in what is really a series therefore, uh, thereafter of uh, conflicts and rivalries um, that ultimately ended in the Great East-West Schism uh, when Pope Leo IX and Patriarch Michael uh, mutually excommunicated each other in 1053. Is it true to say that the Orthodox 
part of the Christianity was not as obsessed by the idea of the Pope, was not even concerned by the idea of a Pope. I think that that is correct, that the, the whole orthodox conception of how uh, the universal church is organised is much more decentralised than that uh, of the Latin West, that um, the Orthodox Communion was always uh, very happy to see bishops as having jurisdiction in their own diocese and even for there to be multiple um, parallel churches that coexisted within a single communion, but nobody had uh, authority over all of them. Thank you very much. Tom, Tom O'Loughlin, um, I think it's in your notes that you bring in this wonderful phrase, creeping infallibility. Uh, when did it start to creep? It starts to creep around sometime between seven and 800, where there are three sources of canon law. There are the scriptures, there are the decisions of councils, and there are the decisions of popes, which are known as decretals. And suddenly you have the fact that there is someone alive who can issue a, issue a, a, a decree which has the same status in law as, a, as, a, as something from the Council of Nicaea or a line from the scriptures. And the Bishop of Rome starts to become a living oracle. He becomes the, the vicar of this whole tradition and then gradually moves to be the vicar of Peter and then to be the vicar of Christ. And once you have someone who can claim to have such unique authority, then gradually other people start to see this person not just as someone with this precise authority as the canonists would define it, but someone who is this almost mystical figure of unlimited authority. What was the idea of knowledge at the time that enabled, as it were, the, the idea of infallibility to flourish? Well, this probably is the greatest difference between the world in which we live and the world in which the idea of infallibility arose. Because in the world in which infallibility arose, all knowledge, and particularly all religious knowledge, was known. It had all been revealed. Once and the since last apostle had died, died, everything was revealed. Everything was revealed. There was nothing more to reveal. You had to go back to them to get at the truth. And But it was all there if you could just work it out. And so the trick was to engage in a, in a massive form of deductive detective work. And anything you could deduce logically was valid. And infallibility was the logical quality that said... If there's two ways of deducing something, the way the Pope says of deducing it is right. And that, of course, that's a, that's a theory of knowledge that applied to the cosmos, it applied to medicine, it applied to logic, it applied to religion. So religion thought of itself as having all of the answers in the same way that there was the knowledge of the cosmos could be found in Aristotle. And this was contradicted quite early on in the 12th century of Abelard attempting to assail that position and so on. But basically the church, as Devon McCulloch has showed very powerfully in his books, powered through. Abelard produces a wonderful book called Yes and No, Sick at None. And in that he shows that you can get one statement saying this and one statement saying the exact opposite. And from this, Abelard shows that these three authorities, scripture, councils, popes, you just cannot use them as this great consistent quarry of ideas. You actually have to have real living thought. 
there is in fact um, uh, quite an ironic paradox in this in that the canonists who were expanding the Pope's authority and and the concept of the Pope's primacy at this time, uh, they were very clear that in fact the Pope could err and that was one of the logical conclusions that they reached as part of this um, understanding of knowledge Uh, and it's because of that that they then had to find some way of correcting papal error Um, some of them first came up with the idea that in fact the whole church itself was infallible even if the Pope wasn't and it's that idea which um, then subsequently uh, was used by others and transferred to the papacy but in a very different context. I must go to Rebecca for a moment. Well one more thing. Well it's just it's it's precisely in worrying about that problem that the, the word infallibility enters the theological vocabulary. Rebecca, can we talk about the place that the Franciscan order played in the development of infallibility and the relationship yes. of the Pope with his... That's right. So we're talking about the 13th century here. Before the Franciscans really get going, the Pope is there primarily as a judge. Well, he, he's a figure of unity and he's a judge. That is his role. But with the coming of the Franciscans, things start to change because the Franciscans get very worried that statements which have backed their order, which have been made by popes, um, particularly Nicholas III with his papal bull, <coughs> Exeit, um, might be overturned by future popes. So the ideas that uh, popes have been putting forward um, to support Franciscan ideas of um, apostolic poverty, they are worried that in the future something might wreck that. And so they start to bring in this idea of papal infallibility to make sure that you can't go back on the statements of your predecessors. Is the word infallible used at that time in the 13th century? Yes, it just starts to be used, um, first of all, by someone called Peter O'Levy, who was very worried, as I say, about a coming pseudo-pope, as it were, as he saw it, who would... um, as it were, ruin what had been set up by by Nicholas III in Exeit. So he starts to use that term of something being infallible, a papal statement being infallible. Now, um, what's very interesting is that the idea of infallibility here is actually diametrically opposed to the idea of papal sovereignty. We might think of them being the same, but in fact, medieval popes very much wanted to be sovereign because they wanted to have control over temporal and spiritual affairs. If you make meaning land and well in the papal states, yes, land, but also as supreme judges, they wanted to be able to intervene authoritatively. So a pope like Innocent III, for example, right at the beginning of the 13th century, he's always writing to powers and saying, "Far be it from me to intervene um, in in this matter, O King of France, or something." And then, of course, he does because he claims the right to do so, ratione peccati, by reason of sin. So the popes well, are actually setting... On, well, it's an umbrella term. You can, yeah. you can get everything in, can't you? But So they are seeing themselves as supreme judges, but as sovereign judges. Whereas once the Franciscans start to put forward this idea of infallibility, that is actually limiting, they think, the powers of popes. However, it then gets even more I complicated. Get it. Why do they think it's limiting the powers? Well, of because it's making them stick to what they've already pronounced on. Oh, I see. So they have to keep in tune with the pronouncements of their predecessors. How much they disagree with them. Yes, they indeed. So their sovereignty is being um, you know, attacked, possibly. 
Then it gets even more complicated, of course, because then as we move into the late 13th, 14th and even 15th century, we have the idea of conciliarism growing. Uh, people like William of Ockham, Marsilius of Padua and so on. Now, they want to also play with this idea of infallibility but in their case it's to do something a bit different it's to reduce the power of the pope in favor of a more democratic as they see it if i can use anachronistic word but for this period but anyway a, a more kind of um open decisions of people being made in council and they're very much trying to push the idea that it's councils that cannot err um and popes um, that can. So they start to sort of worry about this whole issue of papal infallibility. But it all starts off with the Franciscans. Uh, And it comes to a head with Luther. Martin Luther, uh, 1517, Thesis, Dora Wittenberg and so on. But uh, Martin Luther's great attack on the Roman Catholic Church was a a turning point. Can you tell us about that, Tom? Luther, Luther Luther looks at the three traditional sources of authority. And he says, well, councils that we've just, Rebecca's just been telling us about, they have made a mistake because they they condemned and then handed over for burning the great theologian Jan Hus, who Luther sees as his predecessor. And therefore councils are out. And then the papacy, well, it has erred because it has, it has, it has made statements about the indulgence and so there's only one authority because left. These are the indulgences where if you pay enough money, you can shorten your time in purgatory. You could shorten your time in purgatory and you, you, you could show yourself to be a good Christian. So That's an error, according the, to the, Luther. For Luther, that is an error because that is, that is the idea that you could buy your way into heaven. And also to line the pockets of the Catholic Church. And he, he's, he's not, he, he sees that just as accidental damage. The, the main problem is this is you're buying your way into heaven. The collateral damage he just he just sees as, as as something for politicians, but if those two sources are have both erred, then there's only one there's only one source, scripture, and then he comes up with his famous phrase, "By scripture alone, sola scriptura." The reaction to this is that the papacy doesn't defend the power of councils but it defends its own authority. And so there is a new papal insistence on its infallibility and on the role of the Pope within Catholicism. So the attack of Luther produces a counterattack that leads to the modern development in infallibility. Can we talk a little bit, Mars, about the, the Pope's position as being a supreme judge uh, in the temporal world as well as supreme head in the spiritual world, the two things that Mike was referring to. Yes, or the um, the temporal referring to. Sorry. Yes, the temporal and the spiritual spheres uh, spheres are very much combined um, in ideas about the Pope's jurisdiction, and Pope's claim that the entire temporal sphere is subordinate to the spiritual sphere, so that their spiritual authority gives them. Uh, an authority over all temporal affairs. And in the late Middle Ages and into the 16th century, um, popes uh, used that in a number of ways that that, that proved to be very controversial. Um, One of the most controversial is, is in fact, giving dispensations uh, to other members of the church from the church's own rules. So uh, one of them that people will probably have heard about are are marriage dispensations, 
uh, for instance, when um, Henry VIII could marry his brother's widow. But others uh, include allowing um, bishops not to reside in their diocese, which is one of the things most complained about by Protestant reformers. So can I turn to you then on this, Rebecca? By this time, let's say after after the uh, after the Reformation, how entrenched was the power of the Pope? How widely accepted was it uh, in uh, spiritual, temporal, and even judicial worlds? Well, after the Reformation, Catholics are very much on the defensive in certain parts of Europe, and they're looking to the Pope again to be this figure of unity, um, and they are they're clinging. Um, those of them that survive in in uh, in England, for example, they're they're clinging to this idea of the Pope, so that they can remember that they are part of, as it were, the old faith. Um, now, the, the the papal states are still continuing on at this time, and will do in some form or other right it down until Garibaldi. Obviously, we're only left with Vatican City. This is the land today. the Pope owns. And this is the land that, where the Pope actually has direct so. yeah. temple power as distinct from the kind of temple power I was suggesting earlier, which is where he claims the right to intervene um, in temple matters, but that's because they're any, anything to do with sin he can intervene in. So he has two types of temporal power. You see, he has the temple power in the papal states, where he acts like any other um, prince would. Okay, He can raise taxes. Popes in, in the medieval period, for example, have even led armies. And that indirect authority um, that he's wielding as um, the great spiritual unifier and spokesperson in the temporal sphere. Has this creeping um, uh, infallibility, as Thomas uh, Brittany told us, is going on, was this being generally accepted? Were people, was, were people I mean, is there any evidence that it was being resented or were just people just taking it? Well, Tom? Uh, the cultural, the cultural, the Pope as cultural icon is constantly growing within Catholicism from the 16th century. He becomes the distinctive Catholic thing. So the Reformation has done him a favour in the, a way. The, the Reformation did the papacy a great favour in build in building the papacy from not just being the centre of the lives of bishops and the lives of canon lawyers and indeed the lives of princes, but it makes it a it makes it an actual piece of the content of Christian faith. But there are there there are always, even within Catholicism, voices which are saying, Hold on, hold on, it's not as clear as that. And they tend to get lumped together under the name the Gallicans. In other words, they are the people who think of Gaul, France, or the King of France, rather than look constantly to Rome. And then sometimes they're in later terms they're they're called uh, the ultramontanes are those who look over the mountains and think of nothing but the papacy, and the cismontanes are those who think there's also a church here on this side of the Alps. And they're still Catholics, but they're they're saying this is getting a bit out of hand. So you want to say something? So again? the Gallicans, yes, they're always looking at their own sovereign, so um, the French, but also the Dutch, and they put their sovereign and the idea of sovereign power right up there on the same level as the Pope, whereas the Ultramontanes all the time are seeing the Pope as not just the supreme judge, but also, as, as you said earlier, as an oracle. So his every word, his every utterance starts to take on more and more importance, and that's growing throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. Of there had been a practice going back to the 4th century that in the Western Church, using Latin, they prayed for the local bishop and they prayed for the Pope. And that would continue, that continues till today. But in 
pre-revolutionary France, they also prayed for the king. They prayed for ex our bishop, ex our pope, and ex our king. I mentioned the uh, Miles. I mentioned the the kind of reformation during the Pope, a power of good. Can you develop that? Uh, well. One of the ironies of how popes were able to reassert their power in the Counter-Reformation is that, first of all, they did it through a council, that uh, popes had been very reluctant to convene a council to deal with the problem of Luther in the 1520s and 30s, largely because they were afraid that the council would be used against them. But at the end of the Council of Trent in 1563, Pius IV was able to get the council to remit all its decisions and decrees back to him for his confirmation. And he then uh, established a department within the Roman Curia, which was responsible for interpreting everything uh, that the council had decided. But there are two ideas in my mind at the moment, because I know far less than you three. So, um, One is that the pan-Catholicism, as my colleague said, there's very, re- never been anything like it before or since, the way it took in people after people after people uh, for such a long time in such a varied way. It took them on and united them. In the other that you've mentioned... Rebecca, is that the French wouldn't have that and this wouldn't have, so it's, it's fracturing all over the place. How would, you, how would you iron me out on that one? I would iron you out by saying that, yes, there were, there were fractures, but the best thing keeping everyone together was, was the reality of Protestantism. Oh. Nothing, nothing, nothing gave this sense that there is only one universal true church more of a Philip than the fact that you could see people just down the road who were saying no. Like the kings of England going to Australia and brought to unite their own country at home. Exactly. But popes also helped this process. In At the end of the 16th century, they um, commissioned uh, a whole series of uh, new standard texts for Catholicism, a new breviary, a missal, a, a, a Vulgate uh, Bible, that's a Bible in Latin, and a catechism, which, which formed the basis of modern Catholicism. Um, and that was very different to the Middle Ages. Back to you, Tom, leaping through the centuries, which I'm sure you're very capable of doing. Along came the Enlightenment, which seemed to attack directly the uh, Catholic idea of knowledge. The Enlightenment is what, what put, in a sense, undermines the whole theory of infallibility. And I always like to take the example of William Herschel here in London. Instead of saying the universe has this shape and then here's where all the stars are. He sits there with his telescope and his sister beside him and he starts to measure out exactly where each star is. And at the end of it he says, as a result of all my little measurements, I've decided the world is completely different. It's not centred on the, it's not centred on a single sun, it's a galaxy. And he puts forward the first picture of it. But that picture that picture of the greatest reality you could imagine is built up from endless bits of information and the assumption that through research you move from ignorance to a greater degree of knowledge and a greater degree of knowledge again. And that's that enlightenment paradigm, it's an empirical paradigm, that is the exact opposite in terms of its theory of knowledge to the world in which infallibility makes sense. So it's not just, Rebecca, it's not just there is truth or there is not truth. There are now many versions of truth and truth can be revisited and truth can be tested and it can change and that's in one way an essence of the Enlightenment. 
Yes, and it's strange because some of these popes we're talking about um, were very interested, for example, in astronomy. But when they become pope, and as I say, we've got this growing idea of them as the kind of mouthpieces of God, the oracles of God, then they start to get very worried about things like, you know, the Earth going round the sun. Oh, it's, the Earth has got to be the centre of the universe. So I'm thinking back to Galileo and that whole, um, a little bit earlier, that whole issue. So the, the theology um, means that they... They, they back away um, from scientific discoveries and interests, which, which actually um, they may have a personal interest in. So they're, they're in a very awkward position. But it's almost a, it's a direct contradiction, doesn't it, that, that there is no such thing as certain knowledge. Where does that take us, Miles? How did papal infallibility emerge after that? I think uh, papal infallibility emerges from the Enlightenment largely because of another um, of the kind of consequences of the Enlightenment, which is uh, religious, religiously plural societies, that once you can accept multiple different kinds of uh, knowledge, it followed uh, in many European societies that you should tolerate multiple religions. And at that point, there was a question about whether uh, states and governments should in fact um, control uh, the religions which were practised in uh, within their territories. So a logical extension of that is the idea that perhaps the Pope should be in control of the Catholic Church after all um, across uh, the whole of its territories and dioceses. Do you think, Tom, Tom do you think that the, the, um, the Vatican Council uh, was the culmination of... Th- the creeping was over, we were in... We were Infallibility, full infallibility, full on, and this was a big assertion to say, you know, Abhorrent, here we are, go back enlightenment. We're not frightened of you. I think it's go back enlightenment, go back everything that had been happening since the French Revolution, go back Garibaldi, go back all these movements. And Pius the Ninth had more or less declared war on the modern world uh, earlier in a series of of letters that he had written, and the Vatican Council was almost like saying. We dare you to say we're wrong because we we you you just you just keep saying it, but the key the key paragraph at the very end of uh, Pastor Eternus, that's the bit that everyone loves to argue about, and that's the bit I think that that if people are interested in fallibility they go and read, but actually the the key thing to read is the very opening very pious paragraph of Pastor Eternus, because. If you look at the beginning of that that document from 1870, it presupposes that we know everything there is to know about the history of the Church. We know everything that God could ever want us to know about Christian religion. We know, indeed, everything that is in the mind of God and how to interpret Scripture. The sheer world of confidence, of, of religious certainty, where you actually say religious certainty is greater than mathematical certainty because it's founded on the Word of God. That is all captured in that opening word from 1870, that opening paragraph. And it's that world that is at odds with what's happening from the Enlightenment until today. Rebecca, what do you make of that? Um, Yes, actually I wanted to go back to something that Miles had said before that, just about this issue of tolerance. Um, I'm always saying to my students that in the medieval period tolerance isn't up there on a pedestal as something that you should aspire to so look at the way heretics are treated in the medieval period. But with the Enlightenment there's this new interest in, yes, religious freedoms, toleration of other religions and so um, the papacy is very much, as it were on the defensive in in that um, issue. And then coming on 
on um, to to what you were saying uh, uh, just now, Tom. Yes, we've got to remember that Pastor Iternus and um, then the two infallible statements that we have, one before and one after it, um, we've got a whole lot of popular piety that the papacy is trying to deal with in this period in the 18th and into the 19th century, particularly to Mary. Um, this is the time of Lourdes and the apparitions um, of Bernadette. Um, this is the time when Montmartre is built in Paris. So the papacy is now becoming a sort of voice for the Catholic people, particularly the French Catholic people. And that's very interesting because, as, it's, as it were, the, the Pope is bypassing, as it were, the hierarchy of the church and going straight to what the people want, which is increased Marian devotion. So that's a sort of addition that we're getting um, to, from the 18th century onwards. Is Very there any interesting. Th- Sorry to interrupt you. Is there any thought, Miles, that the as, as evolution is creeping up uh, and totally different views of the world? Is there any thought that the 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 those the Pope and those around him are shaking in their boots about this? I'm not sure that there is really, because I'm not sure that Pius the Ninth and his advisers would necessarily have understood um, the debates about evolution as as they were emerging in the mid. Uh, 19th century, that they were very steadfast. Um, what do you mean understood them? Well, they're clever men. They never understood them. Whether they would have accepted them might be a different word. Well, yes, perhaps that's a better word, that they wouldn't have accepted them because, as Tom said a few minutes ago, they were very steadfast in, in their idea that revealed truths were more important than truths that could be shown empirically or historically. And that was at the very centre of many of these arguments about papal infallibility in the 1850s and 60s, that however many times uh, those against papal infallibility showed that there was no historical basis for it, um, those arguments were simply rebuffed on on grounds that um, that wasn't what they believed. But there's this business that we flagged earlier on, Tom, of um, infallibility hobbling future popes, mm. the idea of um, the ban, lifting the ban on contraception. Uh, was put down, which the Pope was that Pope was advised to do. He had to he had not to do it because a previous Pope had said there should be no ban of contraception. Oh, the nineteen no ban. Sorry, let me start again. There should be no ban of contraception. Yes. The nineteen sixty eight decision, whether it was technically infallible or not, has been treated by a vast number of Catholics, bishops, and possibly even by. Some some of some of Paul the Sixth papal successors, as if it were infallible, and there there's a very it's it's quite amazing. A committee is a, a committee of experts is set up, and it reports unanimously that there is no basis for continuing the ban. And they go to the Pope, and we don't know the inner in the ins and outs of it, but it seems that the killer argument was. There is a statement in 1931, which was actually made by a pope to try and counter a statement made by Anglicans. They were going wishy-washy, but he wasn't going to go wishy-washy. And then it was the case, well, if the misstatement in 1931 was right, you can't change it. If you change it, the statement in 1931 was wrong. If If one is wrong and one is right, then neither of you are infallible. And so this logic of continuity uh, became self-supporting. When you say logic of continuity, that might be aggrandizing it, this uh, grip of continuity. Or 
Well, it's well, it's based on a logical. There's a famous logical paradox about this, which you know would be great fun to talk about. And uh, but it's it's basically you know it, it, it's it's a it's a version of the liar's paradox. You can't both be right, but you can both be wrong. But if you're both wrong, you're both wrong. So a. But Vatican II is very clear, if you look at Lumen Gentium, where the Pope can be infallible. It has to be in matters of faith and morals. So not in practical interpretations, but in matters specifically of faith and morals, either when the Pope is is talking ex cathedra from the chair, and there have only, as we've seen, been two instances in history when that has happened, or when he's talking with his bishops and the higher prelates at an ecumenical council. But as I say, it's specifically on faith and morals. Now, we've had two ex-cathedra statements on faith, one could argue. One could argue you've never actually had one on morals yet. But anyway, something like contraception would suggest much more about application, I would have thought. So in that sense, although some Catholics may think that anything the Pope says is infallible, that is obviously not the case as defined at Vatican II. Finally, Mars, I'm sad briefly. What's the status of papal infallibility today, do you think? I think the status of papal infallibility today is quite ambiguous, um, that uh, popes won't renounce the doctrine, but uh, equally they seem to be very reluctant to invoke it um, for the reasons that we've just been hearing. And to pick up on something very briefly that Rebecca said, the problem with this division between matters of faith and morals and the application is that there is no other authority except the Pope to decide what that is. So for any Pope to invoke infallibility, he would have to, in a sense, put his own authority on the line with Catholics. And for every one who might be persuaded by it, he might lose two others who find this um, an intolerable intrusion into their own private faith. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Miles Pattenden. Thank you, Rebecca Rist and Tom Lachlan. Next week, we'll look at the life and works of Samuel Beckett. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. And the one thing I was sorry to, to, to say was that, of course, the, the papacy has, has actually de facto abandoned infallibility in 1964 because in 1964... There was a small document which had a massive impact on Catholic theology called the 1964 Instruction on the Interpretation of Scripture, where it more or less says, we are learning, Mm. and therefore we have to use scientific methods, and therefore we have to look at all the new ideas that are coming along. And that, that moment is actually a formal statement that the old world, we know everything theologically, it's all there in this great this what used to be called the depositum fidei, this catch-all of, of, of everything that was known, was, was, was de facto abandoned. And that has been abandoned in other documents since then, on social teaching, on, uh, other, on other religions, on this, that and the other, where there's an, an awareness that the understanding of the universe advances the understanding of humanity advances and therefore even theological understanding advances. So as a medievalist, I just wanted to add that when I was talking about the growth of papal power in the high Middle Ages, sort of 11th to 13th century, as I say, there's nothing about infallibility yet, but there's this um, creeping... 
sovereignty of the popes. And there's a very interesting document called the Dictatus Papi of Pope Gregory VII, who was one of the great reforming popes from which we get the Gregorian reform movement in the 11th century. And he makes in a document some quite startling pronouncements about the powers of the pope. But even there, where he's going for this extreme sovereign position, there is nothing specifically about infallibility, and that's very interesting. What we do get is the sense that the church will always continue through the ages. So not that a pope will get everything right, but that somehow the church will will always survive, as it were. And then you get popes like I mentioned Innocent III and also Boniface VIII. They're making quite... No, he didn't. Unum sanctum. He makes incredible claims for the powers of the papacy, although... Well, um, he's really saying that um, without... Um, the Pope and without the Church, nobody is saved. But there has been a great debate on this to what extent he was actually drawing on earlier figures, Decretists and also Thomas Aquinas, whether what he was saying was actually that startling or whether it was just the fact that he put it all together in this one blanket statement, Unum Sanctum, at a time when it was politically extremely unwise to do so because of it's, Philip the Fair. So, yeah, it's, but it's a bold statement. And by that point, he really, the papacy's power is waning. It is not the papacy of Innocent III, um, which was incredibly powerful um, temporally. He's on the wane as, as the King of France comes up. And so to make such a bold statement is very, very unwise. Yeah, Boniface VIII, <laughs> Pius IX, and the popes of the Reformation, they all advanced the theory of papal infallibility and papal power precisely because people are attacking them. It's it's this it's this curious thing precisely because um, Boniface VIII has to literally run out of Rome and flee that um, he suddenly realises that the King of France actually has no power at all. Nevertheless, he doesn't use... The, the he doesn't idea, use the, he doesn't or use the, the term jargon. papal infallibility. Jargon. He doesn't use the jargon, but the, you've got an intimation of what is to come, come. definitely. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying, it's often because popes are on the defensive, and this is the way of kind of safeguarding their authority, as you were saying. The other thing is, you asked me quite, quite appropriately, how does it, how how does the idea of papal infallibility fit with the world of the Enlightenment? But there's two other parallel uh, realities to that. The first is that infallibility has built into it a lawyer's view of language where language is utterly comprehensive of reality and things can be perfectly sorted out and defined and they become black and white so you have you know it's 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 the sort of it's it's this lawyer's brilliance idea that you it's either yes or no eventually and also with that goes an, an, a theory of truth that truth is yes or no it's on or off switches yes or no yeah, Abelard, isn't it? It's it's, but Abelard, of course, is Much is, is, is playing. Abelard is Abelard is actually uh, advancing that to show that it doesn't work. No. I think I wanted to take us down a slightly different uh, line on this and to question how far and um, the success of the decree of papal infallibility in 1870 really re- relies on the the Pope's soft power in the 19th century and on Pope's ability to promote a cult of the papacy um, using actually quite ironically specifically modern techniques so really right up until the eve of the French Revolution the popes never left Rome and actually the pope wasn't terribly well known um, outside his own state in the Catholic world it was a great shock to the Austrian emperor when Pius VI made the first papal trip to Vienna when crowds of hundreds of thousands of people turned up to to greet him 
But thereafter, popes were very good at promoting the idea of themselves as cult figures within Catholicism, a process which I suppose has taken its most extreme form in the the kind of iconic status of John Paul II as the Pope who travelled all around the world. But Pius IX played a very important part in that too, harnessing the new techniques of industrialization to make sure, for instance, that all Catholics had an image of him in their homes. And that was very important, I think, for cementing this idea that the Pope was someone who might offer them infallible guidance. Is there something about riding with the inevitable punch, Tom, the business of contraception, which was spoken as if it were an infallible decree, but as you said, people voted with with their feet. Certainly in Britain, uh, Cardinal Heenan treated it as an infallible statement. He used phrases like an encyclical without ambiguity, as if any individual moral decision could be without ambiguity. But it it has led to infallibility ceasing to be an abstract thing that was discussed by theologians. In 1950, it was an academic debate as to whether it was appropriate or not to define the the doctrine of the Assumption. Because to those who were Catholics, it seemed to be no more than one more title for Mary. And if you weren't Catholic, it was just one more one more example of how Catholics obsess about Mary as a distraction from the central central issues of Christian faith. But in nineteen sixty eight, when suddenly there's a decree that affects people in their own individual lives, now infallibility moves from being an abstract thing discussed by canon lawyers and some theologians to being something that is actually discussed out there. And in fact, without 1968, I doubt if you'd be having this programme 50 years later. It's quite interesting that Benedict XVI deliberately, when he wrote books about Jesus and his life, he said, I'm doing this just as any other writer or historian is doing it. I'm not doing it as Pope. So he was trying to make it very obvious to people that there was a difference between when when a Pope speaks um, qua Pope with authority um, and when he is acting like any other clergyman. So perhaps that was an attempt to try to help Catholics to sort of understand that not every word that the Pope utters is infallible, which is what sometimes you, you get. And But as we've shown, it has to be only on issues of faith and morals under certain very particular circumstances, namely either ex cathedra or at an ecumenical well, council. It, it has to be technically that, but of course, if, That's you, right. if you build if you build you, if, a, you build, if you build a triangular model mm. of authority, mm. uh, so that you actually have a chain of command, then anything that comes down the chain of command is comes, assumed co- yes. comes with all yes. the with all all the all the glitter right. of the top of the pyramid. You want to say? Yes, well, John the Twenty Third famously had a, a saying about this that uh, he said he was infallible only when he declared himself to be infallible, and he would never do that, so he never would so be. Have to worry about and it. And it yeah. was <laughs> rather like a, a nuclear deterrent that, uh, as Pope, he would never use, and he was prepared to tell everyone that. Thank you very much. I see the producer approaching. I've never known. I've never been known to say no to a cup of coffee. Coffee, Please. coffee. A cup of tea. tea. In our time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. The Mystery Machine podcast investigates a disappearance and a murder. He was a difficult boy. There was a 
darkness. You could say that. To him. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft, the 20th century's greatest practitioner of horror. I think you should be careful. Gets a 21st century makeover. We're calling it the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And the vessel must be of the bloodline. Oh, there was a bunch of weird stuff in there. Tap the brakes a little. No. I'm becoming a new man. I'm onto something here. A different man. I know now how this ends. The case of Charles Dexter Ward. Download the free BBC Sounds app and subscribe. Or visit bbc.co.uk slash sounds.